This is Bigger Pockets Daily, expert advice for real estate investors. If you like what you hear, check out biggerpockets.com. I think you'll find a warm, welcoming community, a wealth of data to help you make the best decisions, and calculators to help you analyze deals. We make the blog articles available on this show so you can absorb the information while you're organizing the garage or remodeling your bathroom on this Saturday. Okay, almost time for the show. We'll get right into it after this quick break. Meet RentApp, the seamless, secure, free way to collect rent. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. You don't even need to download anything. RentApp setup is straightforward for renters, and there are no apps for landlords to download. Both get peace of mind with a digital transaction history. That means no more lost checks, managing a dozen different payment apps, or even wondering whether payment was sent. Landlords say RentApp is the most convenient way to collect rent, and we think you'll agree. RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Multifamily real estate is at risk of crashing. Part two of three by Scott Trench. And the next topic we start with today in our podcast series is I'm also not betting on interest rates declining in 2023. By the way, if you missed the first two points I'm making in this comprehensive argument, you can go ahead and take a look at yesterday's podcast. Remember, cap rates are lower than interest rates. That's what we touched on yesterday. And that means that for investors to make money, rents have to grow quickly or interest rates have to fall. And as I mentioned, 
yesterday, <laughs> I think there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical about any rent growth projections nationally in 2023, and every reason to think that rents are a coin flip with a significant potential downside. Now, it's time to turn our attention to interest rates. A reversion of commercial rates to the historic lows of the last few years would bail out many commercial real estate and multifamily syndicators and their investors. Is that likely? I don't think so. Here's why. The spread versus the 10-year treasury explained. All right. When banks, institutions, or individuals lend money, they want to be compensated for the risk they're taking. How much they charge in interest can often be thought of as a spread against a low-risk alternative. It's widely accepted in the lending space that the U.S. 10-year Treasury bill is a great benchmark to measure spread against. Other benchmarks include the London Interbank Offered Rate, LIBOR, and the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, SOFR. In fact, a lot of private commercial debt comes with rates that are pegged to SOFR plus a spread. Not the Treasury, but the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond is the standard that most people compare spreads to and the biggest influence on multifamily financing. Many institutions consider lending money to the U.S. government to be the lowest risk investment in the world. Lending to anyone else comes with more risk. Therefore, everyone else should be charged with higher interest. But how much more? That's where the idea of a spread comes in. Just how much spread a lender charges depends on the lender, the economy, and, of course, the demand for loans. In some markets, such as 30-year mortgages for homebuyers, this spread is very well established. There is clearly a really strong correlation to the point where we can take it for granted that if the 10-year treasury goes up, mortgage rates go up, and vice versa. However, it's not a perfect correlation, and sometimes the spread goes does, in fact, change. Today is one of those times. The spread between the 10-year treasury and 30-year mortgage rates is relatively high. Many pundits expect 30-year mortgage rates to decline in 2023. Because of this high spread, they believe that if the spread between the 10-year treasury and 30-year mortgage rates were to normalize to the historical average of roughly 180 BPS, then mortgages could come back down closer to the 5.5 range instead of 6.3% where we are at the time of this podcast. This makes sense in theory, except for two problems. First, the 10-year treasury yield is currently depressed because investors think we are in, or about to be in, a recession. This is commonly expressed by saying that the yield curve is inverted. Folks are fleeing to safer investments like 10-year treasuries out of recessionary fears. It's highly likely that as the economy starts to recover, the yield curve will normalize and the 10-year treasury rate will increase. Second, the Fed is clearly signaling that they intend to increase rates throughout the year in 2023. Betting that rates will come down is a bet against the official stance of the Fed. The only way I see rates coming down and staying down is if there is a recession that is so deep and bad that the Fed is forced to reverse course quickly. In other words, Rates are going to increase for real estate investors and anyone else who borrows money using debt that tracks to the 10-year treasury unless there is a terrible recession where millions of people lose their jobs. So, let's go ahead and flip a coin, shall we? If it's heads, a major recession, 
Jobs are lost, rents decline, and commercial multifamily real estate values decline. If it's tails, a brighter economic outlook, interest rates rise quickly, and commercial multifamily real estate values decline. This is not a very fun game. While it is possible that you see mortgage rates bounce around and temporarily plunge as low as the mid-fives, I'd bet we end the year with rates even higher than where we are today. Again, unless there's a deep recession. But are commercial loans different than residential loans? Why aren't we talking about them specifically today, hmm? While there are all sorts of nuances to commercial lending right now, most folks are likely to be using Freddie Mac loans to purchase small to medium-sized apartment complexes, the asset class I'm specifically discussing in this series of podcasts. So, if they can qualify for a Freddie Mac loan, investors are likely to use them. Freddie Mac loans are the easy button for multifamily investors because they have low interest rates, 30-year amortization, and 5, 7, or 10-year terms. Right now, the interest rates on a Freddie loan can be south of 5%. It's the multifamily equivalent of the conventional loans that millions of real estate investors and homeowners use to buy single-family homes insured by Fannie Mae. Freddie Mac's rates are tied to the 10-year treasury. So, these apartment loans don't see the same rising spread against the 10-year note that we're seeing in the residential, conventional mortgage space. That leaves them with even more risk, in my view, to rise if the yield curve normalizes compared with 30-year Fannie Mae mortgages. It also explains why rates are so much lower in multifamily than in single-family housing right now. While there is a private market for commercial real estate debt, that was perhaps more commonly used a few years ago. That appears to have dried up to a large degree. It's either a government-sponsored enterprise, GSE, like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or bust for most syndicators right now. But the real difference between commercial debt and typical single-family debt is the debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. We'll get into why this is so important right now. High interest rates put pressure on valuations and debt underwriting. Okay. Commercial debt, including Freddie Mac apartment loans, as discussed a little bit earlier, isn't quite the same as conventional lending in the single-family residential space. A typical Freddie Mac loan, for example, might have a 30-year amortization schedule, but with a balloon payment. The balance comes due after, say, 5, 7, or 10 years. This isn't an issue for investors in typical markets. They can simply sell the asset after a few years to pay off the loan or even refinance with a new loan and start the process all over again. But, as mentioned, there is another underwriting test with these loans, the debt service coverage ratio. A DSCR is multifamily's version of a debt-to-income test that many homeowners need to pass when qualifying for a home mortgage. If the cash flow of the business or apartment complex is exactly equal to the principal and interest, the debt service of a loan, then the DSCR would be 1.0. Lower, and the cash flow produced by the business is not sufficient to cover the loan. Higher, and there is excess cash flow. Freddie Mac loans typically require a DSCR of 1.2 to 1.25. Commercial debt negotiated between lender and borrower privately with debt that is not backed by a GSE 
may have more strict covenants like higher DSCR ratios or debt covenants that require borrowers to maintain a DSCR ratio throughout the life of the loan. While Freddie loans can size up to 80% LTV in practice, many get coverage constrained in underwriting to 65% to 75%. In normal markets, these items aren't an issue. But let's go ahead and examine what happens when interest rates rise quickly like they did this past year. Imagine an investor bought a property with a $1 million Freddie Mac loan in late 2021. The loan has a 3% interest rate. The principal and interest on 30-year amortization is $4,216 per month or $50,592 per year. Fast forward to today, this same loan would come with a loan at 5.5% interest. That higher interest rate would increase the debt service on a million-dollar loan to $68,136, an increase of 35%. Now, our investor used a Freddie loan, and an estimated two-thirds of the market uses fixed-rate debt and likely won't run into real pressure for 5 to 10 years, depending on their loan term. But it's important to acknowledge that if that investor were to reapply for that same loan today, they likely wouldn't qualify they likely have to bring significantly more cash to close the deal, reducing LTV, or else they would have to pay less for the property. Even more problematic, there is a sector of the market that uses variable rate debt and other types of creative finance like bridge debt, similar to hard money loans, to finance multifamily and other commercial real estate. According to the Wall Street Journal, about one-third of the market uses variable interest rate debt, and some, unknown, percentage of that cohort uses bridge debt and other non-agency debt. These borrowers will face increasing pressure to make their payments with higher interest rates. Going back to our example from earlier, imagine that the property generated $62,500, 5% cap rate at acquisition, in NOI, with $50,592 in debt service at a 3% interest. Today, those payments are again $68,136. This fictional borrower is now going to have to cover the difference with funds other than those generated by the property. Yikes. Many of these variable rate loans have rate caps in place, often required by their lenders, that temporarily prevent interest rates on their debt from rising too high. However, the cost of renewing these rate caps is skyrocketing by as much as 10 times in light of rising rates. This is already starting to put pressure on borrowers who often have to set aside funds for this insurance every month. Ben Miller, CEO of Fundrise, has termed this phenomenon the great deleveraging, a turn of phrase that I feel sums up this problem very succinctly. Listen to his appearance on the On the Market podcast, and here's some of the examples that are already hitting the commercial real estate world, starting with retail and office space. Brian Burke says that this problem has the potential to be acute with development loans, where re-margin requirements may force borrowers to pay the loan balance down if the lease-up isn't hitting targets. Is a panic possible? When operators can't meet their loan covenants, they may default and hand the asset back to the bank. A foreclosure. In these situations, the creditor will liquidate the property, selling it as fast as possible. 
Some folks may tout a liquidated property that sells for far below market value as a buying opportunity, and it may well be. But it also sets a comp for assets just like it. In addition to DSCR covenants, multifamily properties are appraised just like houses. If appraisals don't come in, buyers need to bring more cash to closing. If pressure mounts over 2023, comps for multifamily complexes could be driven lower and lower by distressed foreclosure sales, making borrowing harder and harder in a negative feedback loop. And that is the conclusion of part two. There is another part coming tomorrow. Stay tuned. All right, that's it for this show. But remember, we have a whole library of episodes with timeless information about how to grow your real estate portfolio so you can enjoy the life you were meant to live. Just tap all episodes in your podcast app or scroll back in the feed to check out an older but still evergreen show. Otherwise, dear listener, until tomorrow.